This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times book podcast where we talk about the latest titles of Susan Reads. I'm To Wen Lee and I'm joined by my co-host, Olivia Ho. Hello. Hi, Olivia. Today we're going to be talking about the six books that have been shortlisted for the Men Booker Prize this year. They are The Long Take by Robin Robertson, Milkman by Anna Burns, The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner, The Overstory by Richard Powers, Washington Black by Essie Adugian, and Everything Under by Daisy Johnson. So the oldest finalist on the list is Scottish poet Robin Robertson, who has published his first novel in verse. Um, and Olivia, um, I think you mentioned that this was one of your favourite titles on the shortlist. I do think it is my personal favourite, not necessarily for literary reasons, but because I'm very partial to a lot of things in this book. Why so are you partial? I, I love cities. I love writing about cities. And I love film noir. And this book is very neo-noir. So it's a verse novel. It's the first verse novel shortlisted in the history of the book. So in that sense, it's... Um, you know, it's new, but also it has a very vintage feel to it. It's about this um, guy called Walker, a man called Walker in name and nature. And he's walking through uh, the cities of America after World War II. So he's a veteran. He's been in, um, in Europe in the trenches and he has severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, so that manifests in the verse. And that's, uh, I think, Robertson does an excellent use of verse here, um, you know, to show the fragmentation of... Um, someone with PTSD's mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I love the way that he talks about cities. Um, he has this very, he's obsessed with light. You know, he likes to see the way light changes in the dark. And uh, so I'm going to read a part here. The city is constantly changing, blocks being bought and sold, demolished and rebuilt. So it has no memory. It knows only this timeless present. What had been a starred canopy becomes squared and defined as a series of cliffs, a city once more edged by light. The city is held in balance, always unfinished, always being demolished. If the construction and destruction ever stopped, the city would fail. That, that's interesting, calling it a city. Was it etched or edged by light? Edged, edged, edged by yeah, light. It's an so interesting you, way to, to put it. Yeah, so this very um, visual cinematography. So if you've ever seen a film noir, you know, those are very old black and white movies, like um, which he talks a lot about mm -hmm. uh, in the book. So you always see uh, the very dark, but... They follow the light, so he describes these, you know, these cubes of light moving through the darkness, um, you know, grids of cities, mm -hmm. and then, um, you know, when the morning comes, the cities pick up, you know, they pick up the darkness like skirts, like women with skirts, and they tuck them under themselves. It's, it's just a lovely image, beautiful, yeah. uh, and um, I'm just a huge sucker for film noir, one of my <laughs> favorite types of movies. Uh, so I think that is the model that he's following. Even though a lot of people will say he's very, um, the Walking City novel is. Um, very Joyce, very James Joyce and Ulysses, Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. But mm. I think uh, it's really film noir that is the canon that he is following. The descriptions uh, is just devastating. Very sad, very sad ending, very beautiful. And there's a nod to that cinematography in the title itself, right? The long take. Uh, yes. Could you explain to uh, listeners what, what that term means for those who don't so know? So what I think he's doing here is uh, he's referring to the 
long take in um, cinematography, which is this uh, virtuosic take of uh, you know a single shot that uh, usually requires a lot of technical. It's very technically difficult. Requires everything to go right. Uh, and in that sense, um, I think he, so. He's referring to that, and there is a long take in the film mm-hmm. in the um, book that he's referring to from one of the film noirs. And so I think he looks to that in the way that he um, uses his verse. Um, although, of course, the novel is not entirely in verse. It has bits in prose, which are uh, his memories, his flashbacks to his childhood, um, where he was happy, but also to um, the war itself. So, you know, you'll be going along in verse and looking at the river and then suddenly, boom, you know, you're in prose and there's uh, people being cut up on the beach by the propellers of Landicraft in, you know, on the beaches in France. And it's uh, so it's very horrible, but very, um, yeah, so you kind of get that sense of jumping in and out. Yes, and Robertson, I mean, he's not the first person, um, not the first poet to have interspersed prose with verse. But what do you think in this case, um, in the case of the long take, what are the merits, the virtues of of blending the two styles or or, or using prose and verse in one in one book like this? What, what what would you say is the overall effect or what does he achieve through this use of form? very intentional. It's very intentional um, the way he does it. Some other people might, um, you know, use that stream of consciousness, but uh, he is, but he has clear, but he clearly wants to use the prose for one thing, which is the past and the, the verse for the present. And uh, so I think it's very deliberate in this sense. Um, maybe a bit unsubtle in a way, we might say. And the font styles are changed. And the font well. styles, they think he, he even changes the font styles, you know, in case you haven't noticed that we went pros. But it's, so it's not subtle, but uh, I think it's very purposeful. Mm. And uh, so another book that experiments a lot in in, um, the, on the short list is Milkman, which I understand is your favourite. Yes, um, not The Milkman, but Milkman. Ah. It's, an, it's, a, no. it's a fascinating um, book by Anna Burns, an Irish novelist. So just to give you an idea of what it's all about, it's um, a first-person narrative of an unnamed 18-year-old woman in Northern Ireland during the Irish Troubles of the late 20th century. So this was a period governed by um, sectarian violence, ethno-nationalist violence. Um, it's, uh, it's set in a very conservative, insular, gossipy country, um, part of the country. And for me, at least, I imagine this to be, in a way, the story of a narrator, the story of a woman, presumably now someone who's middle-aged, who has decided to tell her own story in the time of the Me Too movement. So just to give you a flavor of um, the style of Burns' writing, I'm just going to start by reading the opening of her novel. The day somebody makes somebody put a gun to my breast and called me a cat and threatened to shoot me, was the same day the milkman died. He had been shot by one of the state hit squads and I did not care about the shooting of this man. Others did care though, and some were those who in the parlance knew me to see but not to speak to. And it was being talked about because there was a rumour started by them, or more likely by first brother-in-law, that I had been having an affair with this milkman and that I was 18 and he was 41. I knew his age not because he got shot and it was given by the media, but because there had been talk before this, for months before the shooting, by these people of the rumour that 41 and 18 was disgusting, that 23 years' difference was disgusting, that he was married and not to be fooled by me, for there were plenty of quiet, unnoticeable people who took a bit of watching. It had been my fault too, it seemed, this affair with the milkman. So that's very interesting that there are no, um, she never uses any names. 
I think she does. I think there's a letter where they mention someone's name, but aside from that, yes, virtually no names in this book. Why is that? It's very naked. Um, I mean, very everything is shrouded in this sense of ambiguity. Um, I don't want to say blurred lines, but the lines are the lines between what's acceptable and what's not, um, and what's co- and what constitutes harassment and not. These are very, very hazily defined, and it also, I think, ties in with the idea of how the community the narrator grows up in is a very gossipy community. It's very insular. It's very conservative. Um, it's hush hush. People might make sly suggestions about the misdemeanors of someone in the community, but no one would actually spill it out. Um, so in this novel, she also talks about the idea of victim blaming. Um, and she handles this in a very nuanced and um, clever way. So um, and with a dash of humor. So there's there's one instance where the narrator tells her best friend, or at least her longest friend, so so she calls her friend, about how she has been stalked by this man called um, whom everyone calls the milkman, even though he does not deliver milk. Um, um, they call him the milkman. So she says that she has been stalked by him. He's been threatening her. And her friend's response is not sympathy or empathy um, or even outrage. It's, um, you should have known better than to read while walking. So essentially, she tells her friend that the reason why she has been harassed by the milkman is that she has been walking down the street reading a book. Yeah, so it's her which is It's very much a novel of our times, even though it's set in the troubles. Exactly. I mean, it's almost, I mean, you, you could... It's it's essentially the same as telling someone that they have been asking for it because they were dressed in a miniskirt, for instance. So I, I think um, in this book, what Burns does is she tries to poke fun of it, poke fun at, at this way of thinking. She she exposes this way of thinking as simply ridiculous. So um, another instance of um, dark comedy, comedy in this book, um, is a scene um, where her mother, um, finding her daughter taken sick, um, asks her whether she's pregnant. But her mother, being the very um, conservative person that she is, doesn't dare to spell it out. So she basically asks the daughter if she has been imbued by the milkman, engendered in, breathed in, fertilized, vexed, embarrassed, sprinkled, caused to feel regret, wished not to have happened. So her daughter's just like, why can't you just spell this out? (laughs) So it's utterly ridiculous. One of the virtues of this book is Burns deals with these very heavy issues, these very dark topics, very topical issues in our society, which which are still very much relevant today and deflates um, the backward attitudes of people by exposing them as just simply ridiculous. And it's also very rich, very fluid. The sentences are incredibly long. I mean, that's the first thing that leaps out at you when you read what it. What you say that makes it hard to read? Um, you need to be in the right frame of mind to read it. So I, I would recommend finding a day when you have three and a half hours to spare and planting yourself in a nice coffee shop and just reading it from start to finish. I think, I think that's the best approach. Okay. But it's it's very clever. I mean, as you as you as you read along, you start to pick up all these references. There are references to Joan of Arc. Um, the protagonist um, takes evening French classes, and if it, uh, for some reason, this becomes a source for gossip, and people start calling her a French woman, that hussy, which is again ridiculous. So, with references to Joan of Arc, I mean, later on we see another allusion to women who um, deal with herbs in previous um, incarnations. You get references to cats, familiars. So this kind of, to me, um, establishes um, the idea of a witch hunt, but. Obviously, who who's the witch? I mean, who's being hunted? It's very unclear because there is a man who is, I think, accused of rape in the book, or um, but he didn't actually commit rape, even though what he did was very wrong. And at the same time, um, obviously, the the phrase witch hunt has been um, bandied about as um, criticism um, leveled against um, 
people who championed the Me Too movement. But in the case of this book, it's the protagonist who is on the receiving end of this um, of un- unfair gossip and um, all these baseless accusations. So I think it's it's a very complex book. It's not it doesn't say it doesn't try to say just one thing or or um, or jump to any particular conclusions. It's open-ended, it's nuanced, and I think that's what makes it so powerful. So another book on the shortlist is The Mars Room by Rachel Kushner. I think it's about mass incarceration in the United States. It's about uh, a woman, a young woman, a stripper. Her name's Romy. She has uh, been given two life sentences for killing, for beating her stalker to death. And uh, so this seems uh, kind of unfair. She's not really got a great public defender, but, you know, she's ended up in jail. She's a young son, five years old. Uh, she really wants to get back to him. And uh, at one point, her her mother, who is taking care of her son, dies. And uh, she doesn't know what's happened to her son. And she wants to find out, but no one will tell her. And the, the guards at the prison are totally unsympathetic. And they're like, yeah, this is your fault. You, you know, you landed yourself in this. So it's quite a, so like you said um, about Anna Burns, it's a funny take on a very, very dark subject, you know, on women being women in these situations. And uh, Rachel Kojina did go undercover in uh, prisons to research the book. She pretended, I think, to be a criminology student and she went in and like (laughs) talked to inmates. So they're actually, a lot of the characters in the book are based on real, um, real people. So there's like, um, there's a trans, a trans man who is a Romy cellmate. And um, so he, uh, he was so convincing that he was sent to a men's prison for, and he spent quite, (laughs) quite some time there until they discovered that biologically he was not a man and they sent him to women's prison. Right. And then there's an aging model who uh, got got a hitman to kill her lover and then got another guy, a crooked, a crooked cop, to kill the hitman. And so now she's on death row. And then she uh, sends, uh, and then she sends like wine glasses and photos up the, um, the toilet system to her friends. Wine glasses. Yeah. So apparently you can like send a wine glass up the... I don't know how that works. I didn't know you could do that. Yes. Um, it's a very eclectic cast of characters. Yeah. So, I mean, people are going to compare it to Orange is the New Black because that's the other... Other, um, very well-known women's prison book out there, but um, I, I think it's it, it is different. It's um, it's it's funny, but it's also very dark. And uh, Kushner is you know she doesn't hold her punches. I do think the ending falters a bit. Uh, mm. I was uh, a bit let down by the ending, but other than that, it's a very strong book. Why do they call it the Mars Room? Uh, that's the name of the um, the club where she was a stripper, ah. and uh, so she. This is quite funny the way that she describes the club. She's like, uh, if you're not pregnant, you're hot property. If your tattoos are not misspelled, if you've taken a shower, every, you're the it girl, you know, basically. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it is that kind of very Seems dry, doable. yeah, very dry, um, but you know, voice that hard as nails, very gritty. Another book that I would like to talk about is The Overstory by Richard Powers. That is a very long book, isn't it? More than 500 pages, actually. Oh. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he's known for writing very maximalist fiction, so and this is no exception. Does that so, work for it, the, you know, the fact that it's so long? I think it does. I mean, it takes hundreds, even a thousand years for a tree to grow. I think, yeah, centuries for a tree to to grow. And um, I think this novel tries to, tries to exemplify that or try to to mirror that in some way by being so copious, long, and generous. And, okay, so basically it's about, um, it's about the, inter- the intertwined tales of nine people. Um, their lives are shaped by the relationships of trees in some way. 
So it's quite vast in scope. It stretches from antebellum New York to the late 20th century, timber wars of the Pacific Northwest um, into the 21st century. So it's um, it's got a cast of characters, including um, a psychology professor um, who talks about um, bystander theory, among other things, um, which he later um, brings in when he talks about how because there's so many people on this planet, no one wants to really step up and do something radical to to fight um, deforestation, or at least not as many people um, as we should be seeing. Um, so he's joined um, by other characters who include um, protesters against logging, um, activists, um, and a computer whiz who invents this um, computer game, um, this very successful computer game. So one of the quotes in the book that stuck out um, for me was... Um, one remark by one of the characters in the forest. He says, The best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. So I guess the question is, is, is this a good story? Is it an over story? Yes. Does he overdo <laughs> well, it? There is no over... Well, I guess you could say there is a kind of overarching narrative. Um, it's, it's many stories, um, lots of offshoots. So I think it's, um, I mean, the, the main issue I have with this book, I think it's, it's wonderful, it's sensitive, and there's so many interlocking motifs. It's very clever. But the, the issue I have with this is because of the way it's written, I'm not sure if it will really succeed in changing people's minds. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. then again, you could say, should, should a book be written just so it can serve some kind of um, political purpose? Should it just exist for that function? I, I don't think so. But um, Powers has said in previous interviews that he does want to change people's mind, minds with, these, with this book. And I'm not sure if it's the best um, the best medium for that. But it's beautiful. I mean, the first couple of chapters unfold like a Terence Malick film, you know, The Tree of Life. It feels a bit like that, um, for better and for worse. Um, and I also appreciated the very interesting facts, at least. Yeah, the, the interesting facts that he sprinkles throughout the book. There's one um, botanist in the book who talks about how um, trees can, so to speak, talk to each other. They can send, they? I think they can. Apparently they can. And, and she's yeah. also um, based on a real-life ecologist who said something similar. So apparently the trees can send these chemical messages to other trees in the forest um, via the soil. And also I think in the air, the chemicals that they relate to each other. And these send mes- and, 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 and through these chemicals, they manage to communicate with, with each other in some way um, and warn each other of danger. So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and he manages to make trees, I mean, this is a terrible... Um, Turn of phrase, but he makes these trees come alive for the the city, um, the city dweller, <laughs> um, um, without, in a way, stooping to anthropomorphism. Mm. Anthropomorphism. He doesn't um, pander to that, but it's a successful novel. I'm just not sure if if its messages will end up in the minds of those who most need to hear it. But obviously, um, it takes can take a, a while for a seed to germinate. Who knows? This might actually go on to do something quite surprising and unexpected down the road. So, Olivia, there is another book on the shortlist. Um, it's called Washington Black, um, which begins in the 19th century sugar plantation in Barbados. Yeah, so uh, speaking of s- books with strong social messages, this is uh, it's about slavery, 
But at the same time, it's a very enjoyable novel. I never thought I would say that about a novel about slavery, but it's um, it's an adventure novel. So it begins with this 11-year-old slave called Washington, George Washington Black, called Wash for short. And um, his uh, plantation has been taken over by a new master who is very brutal. Uh, he's uh, There's a lot of very horrific stuff that happens in the first few pages of the book. And um, it's so horrible that... Uh, Wash's guardian, who is this, you know, huge woman called Big Kit, uh, she decides that she wants to kill them both. To she believes that it will take them home to Dahomey in Africa, which is where she's from. But uh, before she can do that, um, um, Wash is taken away to be the assistant of his master's brother, Titch. Titch is an inventor. He's decided to build a hot air balloon, and he needs an assistant who is the right weight. So Wash, being tiny, you know, he's um, he can go up with him. And in the process of being Titch's assistant, Wash learns a lot about science. He learns how to draw. He learns he's got a real gift for scientific illustration. And uh, he, but then for a tragedy occurs, which I won't spoil, and the two of them are forced to run away in the hot air balloon. So that from then on becomes this, you know, rollicking adventure novel. Uh, that sounds lovely. You don't often see books like this appear yeah. on the shortlist. I mean, critics often tend to shy away from holding up an adventure book, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, so it's yeah. an adventure novel in that, you know, very 19th century, like tr- treasure island, steampunk? kidnapped kind of way. I wouldn't go no, so fast really. to say steampunk because, uh, yeah, no no uh, ether, etheric particles there. But um, <laughs> but yeah, very much in that vein. And yet, at the same time, it's so attentive to the horrors of slavery, to the knowledge that scientific advancement doesn't come without, you know, um, some kind of cost, like brutal human cost, and you want to look at that. So Wash is, you know, he wants to be a scientist. He wants to, you know, be a man of science. And he, but he can't because he's a slave. And you know, the knowledge that all your potential is held from you because of what you were born into—that um, I think is the most horrible thing that he discovers amid all the other, the torture and so on. Um, yeah, but it's a beautifully written novel. There's like this part I really love that involves an octopus. Uh, I'm not, yeah, I can't really read it out because it's a bit of a spoiler, but he encounters an octopus underwater and it just like squirts ink at him and he's like, play with me. And then he just opens his hands and it swims into his hands and it's so beautiful. But then at, later on, you realize it's very sad because of what it represents. Yeah, mm. but I can't spoil too much. It's a, it would be a great pity to spoil this novel. And um, and Udogian, she's Canadian. She's a Canadian novelist. She's also the only person of color on the list, uh, which is uh, seems a bit remiss. Finally, we have Daisy Johnson, the youngest author on the list. In fact, the youngest author ever shortlisted. She's only twenty eight years old for the prize. So she's twenty seven. She's twenty eight. The end of the month. Ah, uh, so right. that makes her younger than Eleanor Catton, who won in two thousand and thirteen. Mm-hmm. She was twenty eight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. You know, what do you think of Daisy Johnson? I see it as part of that. I think we spoke about this in the previous podcast as well. It's part of this recent wave of literature which um, takes uh, classical Greek myth and kind of um, has a new sp- and, um, and, and reworks it in a way um, from a woman's point of view. So this novel um, is um, in a way a feminist reworking of the Oedipus myth. It's set in Oxford in England. It's the story of Gretel... Whitting, um, who is the narrator. And um, basically, her mother, Sarah, um, would often have casual sex with men. She finally abandons her daughter when her daughter is 16. Um, and her daughter ends up in a foster home and goes on to become a lexicographer. Um, in other words, someone who updates dictionaries for a living. 
Um, I wasn't as enamored with this book as I was by some of the others in the shortlist, um, but I feel it is beautifully written. I mean, reading it, you feel that the story is set on the side of a canal, and um, it's got a very watery... Um, you almost feel like you're being submerged in some way. I agree, it's beautifully written. The book it reminds me of a lot is Elmet from the previous year's shortlist, which is also very attached to the land that it's based in. Elmet's based in Yorkshire, and this is based on the canals. And uh, But uh, you say that it's not compelling, though. Um, why do you say that? I felt it was, while well-written, um, it was a bit all over the place in a way. Mm. Um, and it's it's one of those situations where you have... A book that is otherwise um, elegantly written, um, full of all this interesting imagery. It's it's got a clever structure, but you just can't put your finger on why it doesn't speak to you in some way. Um, and for me, this book was one of those. I am interested in the way that it deals with the myth, the Oedipus myth. It's definitely a twist, which we can't spoil. But um, it's a very unique way of doing it. And I had not thought of it that way. So Olivia, I guess this is time for the million dollar question. Who will win the Man Booker Prize this year? Um, I mean, actually, it's a 50,000 pound, 50, pounds. pound yeah. question. It's very hard. I never get this right. So I'm concerned <laughs> that whichever one I name, uh, I will curse it. But like I said, my favorite is the long take. I think the Mars Room stands a strong chance of winning. Uh, but actually, given the trajectory of previous prizes, uh, probably Milkman, the most experimental one. I think Milkman might win, actually. Oh, um, yeah. it's, it's very topical. It's superbly written, very clever. Well, what do you think, listeners? If you have an idea who might win the Man Booker, leave us a comment uh, below at wherever we post our podcasts. And you can also email us at podcast at sph.com.sg. So Olivia, I think that's all we have time for today. Um, thank you for listening and see you again next time. That was an SPH podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts and streaming on Google Home. Do send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at straightstimes.com and bt.sg.